Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, a real honor and a pleasure to be here, particularly at Children's Hospital, um, because the path I took to get here involved uh, first doing a pediatric residency at Boston Children's Hospital, followed by, because of my interest in pediatric critical care and anesthesia residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, followed by my fellowship in peds anesthesia and critical care uh, back at Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, so it's really, really great. There's a just, as you know, there's a whole different feel when you walk into a children's hospital than you walk into any of the hospitals. So coming through that main entrance and, of course, coming down the long hallway here, away from the children's hospital, it's, it's just fantastic to be here. So how did I end up with the Juris Doctor uh, along with my MD degree? Well, I, after I did all that training, I, I moved to Chicago in 1989. In the first three years I was there, I took care of two children murdered from shaken impact syndrome. And, and I'd seen a lot of child abuse cases when I was in Boston, actually when I worked in London uh, for a while as well. But these were particularly horrific cases and I got involved as sort of the expert witness working with the legal system to help the legal system understand what happens in medicine. And I, from my standpoint, was learning a lot about the law and I found it absolutely fascinating. That, that interface between medicine and law seemed particularly important to me. So I did decide to go ahead, and while I was doing a lot of pediatric anesthesia during the day, I decided to go to law school at night uh, at Loyola, where after four years, I actually got my JD degree, became a licensed attorney. I've been a licensed attorney ever since then. Um, and then a couple of other things happened two years after that, which were huge for us at the U of I. One was the Institute of Medicine report came out talking about all of the preventable harm that exists, kind of the real thrust, the real beginning of patient safety. At the same time, we at the U of I lost our excess insurance carrier, St. Paul Insurance. So now what did that mean for us? Well, in 2000, 2001, we were self-insured up to about $3 million. And St. Paul Insurance attached a three million all the way up to 65 million for the big cases. When they pulled out, we could not find an insurance company to attach anything lower than 15 million. So we had a gap of $12 million on each and every case. And so from the physician group perspective, our medical service plan, that following year, 25% of our gross had to go to our liability premium. So we were prepared to dissolve the MSP because it was not and could not be financially viable. And instead of doing that, they asked us to put together a program I'll talk to you about today, which is how can you approach patient harm in a way where you're doing the right thing, you are improving and preventing a lot of these horrible safety events, but also communicating really well when they do happen and what would that do and the impact was massive it was huge right away and so that led to a lot of federal funding for us to really build out our communication and resolution program and just this last december we published a lot of data showing the upside on this approach from both a patient safety and a liability standpoint so i'm here to share a little bit of that journey of how where we were and how we end up where we are now but I'd like to begin with this, um, this little quote from Mother Teresa because it fits so well with your vision and value statement here at 
Connecticut Children's Medical Center. So here, Mother Teresa talks about the power of trust, honesty, humility, transparency, and accountability. And it really does build not just a positive reputation, but it builds your soul. And so when I went to the website and I looked to see what the values are for the hospital, lo and behold, I find these that fit perfectly with the topic today, which is we are open, honest, and ethical. We take responsibility for our actions and fulfill our commitments. We admit our mistakes and we learn from them. That is the essence, really, of a communication program. Uh, and again, so, and why do we do this? So I do like always to begin with a patient's story. Um, this was a tragic case we had at the University of Illinois. This is one of those cases where in my role when I was working there as chief safety and risk officer, I get the call at 5 p.m. when you will hear what happened in this particular case and how it ultimately resolved and changed our organization forever. Uh, thank you for allowing us to be here today and uh, speak to you about something that's very close to our hearts. Uh, my name is Bob Malizo. This is my wife, Barbara. Hello. We're from Indiana. And we were victims of a hospital error. I want to start out by telling you something about my daughter um, who obviously passed away due to this hospital error. Uh, my daughter was very beautiful, a very articulate, and a very intelligent person. Um, she was very kind and she was very caring and very giving. And when I say she was giving, uh, she was an organ donor. And in her passing, one of my closest friends is alive today because of a kidney uh, that he received from my daughter. I'll tell you, uh, my daughter's name is Michelle. She was our oldest child. She had two children, ages one and seven. She was a graduate of Purdue University. She had a degree in elementary education. But she was in management and she was in business with me. What happened to her started in 2007. We found that my daughter had a biocystic liver and it was creating a lot of problems for her. So a surgeon recommended that we go to Northwestern and see a specialist at Northwestern who did a, a liver section on her in 2007. Uh, she recovered from that and was doing quite well until about 2008 and she had some complications um, with her liver again. So we went back to Northwestern to see the surgeon who had moved on to another hospital and they recommended that we go to UIC and see a surgeon there, which we did. And it was found that a bile duct in her liver was, was blocked. 
and she was going to need surgery. But they couldn't do the surgery right away because the surgeon that specialized in livers was out of the country and wouldn't be back for a month. So they decided to do uh, bypass surgery on my daughter uh, so she could get rid of the, the waste from her liver. They did the first surgery, um, which went pretty well, but she woke up in the middle uh, of the procedure. And they sedated her some more, and, and we got through the first surgery. About two weeks later, there was a reoccurrence of the problem that she had, and they found that the bypass was blocked and since the doctor who was out of the country wasn't back yet they thought they would just change the uh, bypass tube and she'd be fine for the couple weeks that was needed for him to come uh, back into this country <clears throat> so we scheduled the surgery uh, we were in a she went in actually on her daughter's first birthday they were going to operate her on they operated on her the following day uh, prior to the operation we were waiting in an area an area uh, by the by the room where they were going to uh, do the procedure and an intern came up to her because my daughter had expressed concerns about waking up in the middle of the procedure and when we originally discussed it we thought it would be best for her to have an anesthesiologist there well the day of the surgery the surgery was delayed for a few hours we we're in this waiting area and an intern came up to her and said uh, you know do you you want to wait for an anesthesiologist it's going to be another couple hours and she says well I don't know I woke up the last time and he said to her don't worry we'll sedate you um, you won't wake up and he was correct She didn't wake up. My wife and I and my son-in-law were in the waiting area when the surgeon came out and asked us to come into another room. And as we entered the room, he said, everything went terribly wrong. Your daughter had a heart attack. I said, what do you mean a heart attack? She's 39 years old. She never had a heart problem. What are you telling us? Well, we're working on her to bring her back. Bring her back? What are you talking about? He said, I have to go, and he went back into the room, maybe 15 minutes later, we saw them wheeling my daughter out, and he said they were bringing her up to ICU. 
So it all went up to ICU in hopes that her daughter would recover. After a few days, uh, my daughter was on a ventilator. Uh, there was really basically no response from her. Uh, Dr. McDonald and a Dr. Schwartz, Dr. McDonald's associate, Nikki, and, and a Dr. Mayer, asked if they could have a conference with us. And we said, sure. And they said, we think that uh, we may have committed some errors in your daughter's procedure. What are you talking about? You committed some errors. Dr. McDonald says, I, I don't know all the facts yet, but I'm investigating, and I will be back in a couple days to inform you what transpired. Well, obviously, we were very reluctant that we were going to get the truth. We thought they were going to come back with a story that it was just my daughter having a heart attack, and it was unfortunate. But my daughter was still on a ventilator, so we didn't know if she was going to recover or not recover, but our, as the days passed, we were quite concerned that she wasn't going to recover. About two days later, Dr. McDonald and the staff met with us again, and he said, <clears throat> It was our fault. <coughs> Your daughter's in here because of what? We make a lot of mistakes. And hopefully your daughter will recover, but the likelihood is that she won't. And we apologize for what we did. Obviously, we were angry. How could this happen? We brought her here to the sacred hospital that we thought was the best in the area to take care of our child. And you let us down. Dr. McDonald said, I know we did, and it's my fault. Well, it wasn't Dr. McDonald's fault, we all know that. There was a number of errors that were committed on my daughter, including the emergency response team who came in and trusted a monitor and no one used their stethoscope to see if her heart was beating. If they did and performed CPR, she'd probably be alive today. But they didn't. So we spoke with Dr. McDonald Moore and we said, look, we don't want this to go in vain. What happened to my daughter, or our daughter, excuse me, should not happen to anyone. And what can we do? 
to help prevent this from happening ever again. So Dr. McDonald said, I will let you know. But I do have some ideas. And I can assure you we're going to change our procedures. Which they did. About a year later, uh, he approached us. Uh, he gave us time to absorb what had happened. Um, but he kept in touch with us. And one day he wanted to sit down with us and ask us a very important question. And I'll let my wife take it from here. Well, when Dr. McDonald met with us about a year later, um, he asked if we would like to have a seat on the safety board committee, and it would be a lifetime seat. It would be go from us to our other daughter, Christina, even down to our grandchildren and Michelle's children. Uh, we felt honored and we felt like maybe we could help make a change. And when we do have the meetings, we walk out of there and we really feel good because it's really out in the open. They tell you any mistakes that were made, near misses, and then what are they going to do about it. And then when we meet the next month, they usually have a solution. Things have already been put in place. And that. And every time we do that, we think of Michelle and thinking, well, this wouldn't be done if it wasn't for her. Uh, I'm really glad that Dr. McDonald gave us that year because I know we would not have been ready to participate in anything. It was a, it was a very tough year. But I do want to say, um, the honesty of the hospital really helped us. I have friends when I tell what happened and the hospital admitted it right from the beginning, they can't believe it. They've never heard of such a thing. And then for the hospital to stay in contact with us and have us on committees and, and do everything that we do to help, they just think it's amazing. But really, that's the way it should be. If a mistake is made, it's so much easier on the family if they just admit it and say, what can we do? And uh, your loss is there, but you still feel like maybe you can do something to make a change. So it's been very important to us. In closing, uh, a couple things I'd like to say. One is that A layperson shouldn't be charged with making a medical decision, like when the intern uh, approached my daughter about an anesthesiologist. The surgeon or his staff should recognize there's a concern and do what's best for the patient. And I think that's a very important issue is communicating with the patients. And lastly, because of being on the board and seeing Mary misses and what they do at UIC to prevent any such happenings at their hospital, uh, the sincerity of the committee, which is about 40 people, uh, made up of doctors and nurses and managers, I've become a patient. 
at UIC. I have a bad heart. But because of their honesty and what they did for us to help us through a very difficult time, like attending the funeral, Dr. McDonald and his staff, has created an atmosphere of trust. And I recommend this hospital to my friends or anyone that is concerned about their illness. Thank you for allowing us to speak. I will turn this over to Dr. McDonald. <clears throat> so that, that took place in 2008 um, in our organization. And to kind of share a little bit about how we were able to respond in some of the other issues, one of the reasons that I mentioned to the family that I was the one responsible is because not only was I a higher up administrator in the Department of Anesthesia, uh, I was also the chair of our modern sedation committee. And I knew that our procedural sedation areas, we were really, really pushing the envelope. We were giving way too much Narcan down there to our patients. And we had had a plan to try to get more anesthesia coverage there and to address some of the over sedation issues. And it was due to take place the month after this event happened. We were just too late. And we felt horrible about the fact that we knew this unsafe condition was out there. We knew it was going to take the system to address it and fix it. And again, we were just too late. The other piece that this case really identifies is the need to have a very rapid response to harm. Because when she had the cardiac arrest in the GI suite, our hotline went off. And our hotline goes to our head of risk management, who then notified me and some other people to get there right away so that we could figure out what had happened. And what we found, after Michelle had gone up to the ICU, we found about 15 feet of rhythm strips that also had pulse oximetry documentation and other documentation on there torn off and in the trash. It was not part of the legal medical record. When you look at the modern sedation form, which we did immediately send out for outside review, it showed we met the standard of care. But the rhythm strip showed that she went seven minutes with an oxygen saturation under 50%. So we knew she wasn't gonna wake up. And so the question at that time for our leadership, CEO, board, CMO was, do we share this information that is not part of the official medical record? Do we share this with the family? And that decision was made over the weekend. And as you heard, we did share it with the family. And then that case fully financially resolved in less than six months without a lawsuit, without litigation. And we learned a ton. We changed a lot as I'll share with this kind of going on. And they have been unbelievably great friends of ours ever since then. It really, really has changed uh, the organization. For the interns and residents in the back, the way this played out for our interns and residents last year was that the daughter who is now 15 gave the opening remarks during orientation for the new interns and fellows at the university of illinois to explain to them the importance of patient safety and transparency it was a very moving discussion so we have involved 
all of the generations as it relates to this, again, to remind us what Mother Teresa said about the power and the importance of transparency. So, so the, the issue is, is kind of how we got there. Again, a lot of anesthesiologists get involved in patient safety, and I think it goes all the way back to when I began my training in Boston. How many of you are in here who might be old enough to remember when this TV show came out? Do you remember that? Do you remember the message that came out? It was very powerful. This was, ABC put it out. It was a show called The Deep Sleep, and they talked about all of those patients who suffered very serious injury, injuries under uh, the supervision of anesthesiologists. Preventable harm cases, 6,000 a year. Death or serious. And it was a big call to arms for those of us in the anesthesia community. And it actually created the first ever patient safety foundation known as the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. Ellison Pierce started it. He was the head of anesthesia uh, at the Deaconess Hospital. And that's actually where I learned my transplant anesthesia. And so there was this huge look at all of our liability cases in anesthesia with human factors, with an eye towards what is going on and what can we do to redesign our system to make care safer. Within three years, all of our systems changed. All of our standards changed in anesthesia. What do you think we were doing in 1986 that we were not doing in 1982? What were some differences of the way we were monitoring patients? Pulse ox. So how did we know the oxygen level in our patients in 1982? It was the color of the blood. I will tell you, I still remember my first cases. I wrote down, incision made, 8, 10 a.m., comma, BRB, which stood for bright red blood. That literally, we did not have pulse oximeters in the operating room. How did we know whether or not the endotracheal tube was in the right place? We would listen with our stethoscope. Or we were convinced that we saw the tube go through the cords. Not particularly highly reliable. And so by 1986, we ended up having all of these monitors in place. And it's amazing to look at the outcomes. So in 1982, your risk of serious brain injury or death was 1 in 2,000 as a healthy patient undergoing anesthesia. Now it's actually approaching Six Sigma, where from the anesthesia perspective, that you may have that harm. I mean, it's a huge reduction, not only in harm events, but also liability. So it's this huge interface, again, between patient safety and liability. What do we have to learn to continue to get better? And then, of course, we talked about to Air is Human that came out in 1999. And tragically, for those of you who are moved or influenced by patient stories, this book by Rosemary Gibson is particularly powerful because it talks about the wall of silence that happens in so many patients when bad stuff happens. Not mistakes necessarily, but just bad stuff happens. Our natural tendency is to lean away instead of leaning in when patients and families are the most vulnerable. So we learned then, particularly in Cook County where litigation is ridiculously horrible, um, that culture eats strategy for breakfast and we needed to find a way to change the culture of the organization. And this is what we started doing in the early 2000s. But here's a real case that came up, and I'm hoping some of the residents will look at this and speak to us and inform us. So a real case that we had in our operating room, a patient under open heart surgery, could happen to a pediatric case if you're doing congenital heart surgery. The case is over, the chest is closed, planning to extubate in the operating room. The surgeon left our third floor to go to the sixth floor to talk to the family. 
person running the heart-lung machine hands the cell saver blood to the anesthesia resident, puts it under pressure, patient undergoes full cardiac arrest, and only the resident sees there's air in the IV line from the bag of blood going into the patient. What does the resident do? What are the barriers of the resident speaking up and telling the attending physician in the room, I think we have a problem. I think there might be air. What would be some of the barriers? What might be going through the resident's mind? What would some of the fears, particularly interested from, from our learners in the, in the upper left, what might be going through their head? That would be a fear to them speaking up. So it might be denial, right? Oh my gosh, was it really there? But remember, they see the, the air all the way down from the bag into the patient. What's, what would some of the fears be of the, of the resident at that point in time? Afraid that you'd be wrong and cause unnecessary anxiety. So, so it turns out they're not quite right. It didn't cause the cardiac arrest and you've caused unnecessary anxiety. Sure, that happens all the time, particularly in the heat of the moment. Other fears of speaking up and saying, hey, there might be air in the line. Yeah. And what would your fears be? What, do you, what would we be afraid of, particularly as learners, in that situation? Right. So the question is, what might be the barrier to telling your supervisor, hey, I think this error may be the problem? That it'll come back to you in terms of being blamed for it or potentially some of the fears? How about speaking to the family if this, in fact, turns out to be a cardiac arrest and turns out to be air, what are the barriers to going out and speaking to the family and letting them know air caused this particular cardiac arrest? Are there fears in having that conversation? Fear of being blamed? Other fears? So, so the liability piece, so the notion that perhaps maybe we get sued more if we're transparent. And why are lawsuits so bad? Why are they so bad? Because they are bad. What is bad about lawsuits? Reputation. So reputation, a huge issue, particularly when you have a lot of com competing organizations that are around. Reputation. What's another thing that's really bad about lawsuits? They're very expensive in a whole lot of ways. Not just what we pay for defense counsel, but the time you have to take off and the rest of the piece of it. Has anybody ever been involved in a deposition in the room? I see some heads going up. I have been involved in a deposition, and I can tell you they are nauseating. They are ridiculously difficult. In fact, I could tell when my surgeons I was working with in the OR were about to have a deposition because it is so stressful. Um, about what's it going to be like, what are the questions they're going to ask, that sort of stuff. So we do everything we can to try to avoid lawsuits. So if we're going to have a disclosure program, a very aggressive disclosure program, communication program, there have to be benefits that are greater than what these risks are, what the barriers are. What are the benefits to being transparent with patients and families? 
What's one of the biggest benefits? Trust. 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 So maintaining trust. Absolutely with the Malizo family, a critical, critical issue. So maintaining trust. Other reasons why being open and transparent are so important for an organization, particularly one that is seeking high reliability. What is the other value of being transparent? You can make a change. The primary reason that we put our program together was to create a learning environment. Because if you are not transparent, it is very hard to learn. And, and so that was one of the other big issues. What about some other reasons why benefits to being transparent from any data that you may have seen recently? Less likely to go uh, to actual lawsuit, maybe settle and reach an agreement? Absolutely. You're very less likely to get sued. You're very less likely, particularly when you know your care was okay and you're open, but you, the, the number of claims, the number of lawsuits, the dollars associated it, all the places we have now studied it in have gone down. The other part is there is more learning, safety improves, but the other big piece that's come up is there are huge issues with burnout now that exist both in nursing and in medicine. And we know that when you create this kind of culture and environment, it really can help with all of those kind of emotional issues that go on. Um, and so when you look at the list and you go back and forth, you can see a lot of the stuff that are the barriers. Some people talk about they don't know how to do it. They, we weren't trained in medical school or nursing school to have some of these really difficult conversations. I, um, as I had moved on after I started this program a couple of years ago, I was actually asked to open a woman in children's hospital in Doha, Qatar. A, uh, again, a woman in children's hospital as a chair of anesthesia, medical director for quality and safety. The biggest fear over there was deportation. In an environment where if you speak up, being an expat, it was a huge fear. So there were huge barriers potentially over there. But the benefits were much greater that we saw that and that's one of the reasons we really pushed to hardwire this sort of approach uh, in terms of going forward. So we published this, uh, this case in the journal Chest. As it turned out, the resident did speak up. It did turn out that it was air. They dropped the head of the patient down. They turned the patient on the left side. They sucked out a bunch of air out of the central line catheter. They were actually able to resuscitate the patient and get the patient back, but they didn't wake up in the first 24 hours. The team was totally honest with the family, explained what it is that they knew, and fortunately, that patient did wake up the day after that and was discharged from the hospital the day earlier than expected and we learned a ton. The biggest thing we learned is that it had happened twice before. The air getting in the line, but it hadn't hurt the patient so nobody reported it. So the other critical take home for this is when you see stuff, how important it is to report it so the people in risk management can begin to see these, can trend them and intervene hopefully before you have serious harm going forward to doing this. So, at any rate, to get our program going, we had permission from the board to put this whole comprehensive program together. Um, we were able to integrate safety, risk, quality, credentialing, claims, ethics, and finance all together in a way where we really can approach this, have a lot of data, and do it in an extremely mindful way. And we realized very early on that we designed it wrong. This was the original design, which is a classic SariWorks disclosure program. What is so wrong about this? Event happens, it gets reported, risk other quality people begin to investigate it. If you decide it's inappropriate care, we will then apologize, let them know, and try to get remediation. What's wrong with this diagram? 
Why is this so bad? What's not on here? So you wait for the event to happen, so there's no near miss, there's no proactive work before harm occurs. What else is really bad about this? How long, I don't know about you guys, how long does it take to decide whether, you know, what the analysis is, what the event review is? I mean, I'll tell you, U of I, sometimes it's two months. There's no communication with the family during that time. So when we show this to patient advocates, what they said this was so bad is, Every hour that goes by for them, every hour that goes by after serious harm and you've not had effective communication, it's another harm. Every hour that goes by without effective communication is another harm. The biggest take home our docs and our nurses got from this and changing their practice is, I now understand the power and the importance of beginning the conversation. Not apologizing, not saying mistakes were made, but how do I have that early empathic conversation to maintain trust and promise them as we learn information, we will share it. The other piece that isn't in here is the learning. There's no connection to learning. And importantly, there's no care for the caregiver. There's no program to really as quickly support doctors and nurses when this bad stuff happens. And then, so that for that reason, we totally redesigned it based on what their input was uh, in terms of doing it. The other thing we would do is, we build patients uh, kind of right out the bat, even though we were investigating these cases, and that's not a wise thing. I can tell you we ended up on the front page of the Sun-Times when we sent a family to collections after having done wrong-sided neurosurgery. So when you talk about the political environment, these are not the kind of cases where, where you want to think about and begin to, to do that. So we, this, we put together, this is what we published. We put together this flow called the Seven Pillars which shows when events happen, even when there's no harm, how do you analyze those and improve things, particularly with near misses, the second patient program, second victim program, and we created a patient communication consult service where we have a communication skills assessment where we were able to identify these super communicators in the organization to take the lead to help having these conversations, to support the surgeons involved in harm events, and it is staggering to see what the re results were related to that. Uh, one of the examples we had is, and you can imagine, Michelle, from the risk standpoint, I know you don't do that kind of care here, but imagine at 4 o'clock in the morning, we handed a baby to the wrong mom who then breastfed that baby until 5, turned the lights on, and the whole room knew she's got the wrong baby at her breast. That's a hotline call because you now have two critical conversations to have. One with the woman who breastfed the wrong baby and one for the woman whose baby was breastfed. And I called up and I said, okay, who is on call for OB? And it turned out to be one of those rare physicians who has that unique ability to upset almost everybody that they meet. <laughs> They piss off the people at Burger King when they go in. <laughs> and so my palms start to sweat. I am so freaked out, thinking there is no way in you know what, I'm gonna have this person go in and have that conversation. So then I say, who is on call for family medicine? Because our family medicine docs also deliver babies at U of I. And they also are great at taking care of a lot of the, the kids that aren't super complicated. 
So it turns out to be Mark Potter, who was the head of our family medicine residency and ranked as one of our most emotionally intelligent, highly qualified communicators. So he goes in, has both conversations. He already knows he has a little bit of leeway with me to provide many months of diapers and all that sort of stuff. But he's so empathic, he's so effective that they essentially, these families, are thanking him for the opportunity to engage in this wet nurse process that happens all throughout the world with no problems related to anybody. <laughs> no, it was, it's staggering. But, the, but three years later, this case drives home why I'm so passionate about doing this. And hopefully the interns up there will appreciate this. So we have the largest medical school in the country at U of I, 360 students per year. We have an integrated four-year curriculum that we work with the nurses in patient safety. And I'm giving this talk in front of that group and at the end of it, everybody files out. And this one woman walks up to me and she says to me, Dr. McDonald, you don't know who I am, but I'm the woman whose baby was breastfed at four o'clock in the morning. And when I saw how empathic Dr. Potter was, I thought to myself, having a choice to go to a lot of medical schools, I wanted to come to the University of Illinois so I could teach my fellow students, interns and residents, about the power of this kind of communication. And she has since graduated, finished internal medicine, and is now the lead of the patient communication consult service after I left the U of I to go to Doha, Qatar. This is why we do this. It fills your soul with joy. It brings joy when you get involved in this kind of of programs. So we built the CANDOR program. It's got these five domains that involve activating the system, responding, communicating, the human factors event review, uh, and in this huge paradigm shift where we do things completely differently. This is not just the communication piece. It's the reporting part. It's the human factors event analysis linked to real process improvements. It's all this sort of stuff in here that you can see going forward uh, moving this kind of program. And I just want to move forward as you get to this is a bit about the skills assessment and what we do but I want to share this very quick video here before I finish the data and we finish before uh, the time is up but I want you to see this video because it's a great example of the power importance of just listening and not trying to fix things how many have seen the video not about the nails so a few people in here have seen it this is my favorite video by the way it's just there's all this pressure you know and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It's not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... But you always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. Yeah. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. Sweaters <laughs> are snag. I mean, all of them. That sounds 
really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! <laughs> oh, if you would just don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, anyway, so a lot of what we do um, helping with organizations is one, find the super communicators as well as everybody else and we do a lot of communication training that focuses on the listening piece and it can have just a huge impact and I'll just jump right ahead quickly to um, the process improvements following Michelle's case were huge and went actually nationally. It was one of the cases that really prompted the American Society of Anesthesiologists to make the recommendation you should really consider capnography in these modern sedation cases. Um, because you can intervene earlier, you can rescue you earlier. Huge changes made just by this one case as a promise we made to the family. And then in December, we published in Health Services Research a ton of data that shows that a lot of things that people were afraid of did not come to fruition. One thing we did see is a logarithmic increase in event reporting. Where do you think most of those came from? You guys. When we started our program, we're about a 250, 300-bed hospital. We were getting about 3,000 event reports a year. When I left, we had 13,000. Two and a half thousand reports from resident physicians alone. All opportunities to learn built-in event reviews, interprofessional human factors event reviews went up. Claims went to almost nothing in terms of what we saw. And we saved about, in one hospital, over $80 million over the course of seven years which allowed us to get our premiums down substantially for our physicians. A lot of the excess money was put into the patient safety program. Liability costs went to the floor. We stopped paying money to defense attorneys to defend the indefensible. Big, big, huge savings here. The other part we saw in this parallel paper was physicians who went through this training when compared to other physicians in the same location, no matter where they practiced in Cook County, practiced a lot less defensive medicine. Far fewer costs associated with those things. Again, we would all associate with defensive medicine. Time to resolution was cut to more than 70%, which meant more support for caregivers. And as it turns out, it's not just the right thing to do, as we saw, but it's also the smart thing to do. So we were funded a great amount of money to create a toolkit around this that came out in, Mar in actually May of 2016, we finished in September, May of 2016, that's when I repatriated and we're now working with more than 110 hospitals to find ways to implement these various things that fit with them. And finally, the final word on healing. As I promised the Melizo family, four years after Michelle died, they came to our safety review committee to bring presence to those who were totally honest, the nurse who took care of in the ICU, our head of risk management, Nikki Santamani, and myself. And I promised them, and this is the watch, that's the back of the watch. I promised them that every time I do a patient safety lecture, I will wear this watch as a reminder to how important their daughter was, helping us to learn how important communication and transparency is. Thank you for your time.